Hey everybody, what's going on? Friday night. How are you? Welcome to Tone Talk with Mark Uzanski and Dave Friedman. We've got a special guest tonight, Amir Durak. How are you, Amir? Hi, I'm good. Awesome, man. Thanks for joining. Amir, Amir is from um, various bands such as Julian K, Dead by Sunrise, Orgy, Rough Cut, uh, long history of loving gear. So he's going to fit right in on this conversation. <laughs> so amps and guitars and pedals and all the goodies. Yeah, for sure. And Neve consoles. And <laughs> oh, yeah. And all the production goodies, too. <laughs> hi, guys. Since Mark didn't introduce me. <laughs> oh, I didn't say hi, Dave. <laughs> didn't I say Dave Friedman? Hey, Dave. Hi, I'm, to come, I'm coming to you from Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. Um, someone will correct me, I'm sure. Um, I think it's Louisville. Because I had, well, it depends on if you say it with the accent or not, or with the proper way to say it, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I had to fly out at the last minute to repair Slash's rack guitar system. So, woohoo! We'll see what it, <laughs> what I get tomorrow. So. You don't know what's what's happening with it? No. But it's not working? Uh, it's kind of working. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's too hard to... Uh, I, I can't diagnose it on the phone with them, so... Uh, so they wanted me to come out, so I'm here. Again, traveling. After just getting back from Europe. Yeah, it's... Uh, well, that's too bad. Um, yeah, it's been a, want, a long week. I want to know where my croissant is. <laughs> <laughs> my croissant and bottle of rosé. So how was your trip to Europe? Mm, it was great. Especially Barcelona. So how long did you... You were there like two weeks, right? Yeah. We're in Germany, Netherlands... Um, Barcelona, uh, and two different Lyon and Paris, France. That's man. I wish I was there. Was it grueling though? What's that? <laughs> Especially Barcelona. Yeah, I hear Barcelona is awesome. Well, Steve Vai said yeah. it was awesome too. Was the food great? Yeah. Have you ever been to Barcelona, Mir? I have. It's really cool. There's some very cool things about it. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of funny because... Topless beaches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Southern California there. With right? the feel. Right, right? The feel. Yeah, which which really sets it apart, though. Um, yeah, no, we stayed at a really nice hotel. It was really cool. Um, we had a day off there, which was the only day off we had. Um we drove 15 hours to get there. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> the man that was driving. So. All right. Where should we start off with this? Where do we Where do we begin? I mean, obviously, well, Dave and I have a history since uh, I guess the 90s, right? Um, yeah. When When was it we first met? Was it orgy or no? Or yeah. 
no, it was it was when I had just, you know, we had just finished our record and I had done all this crazy stuff in the studio and I'm like, how the hell am I going to do this live? And I came to you, but I don't remember how I met you. I don't either. <laughs> I have no. Someone knew someone. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, everybody's like, oh, you got to go to Dave Friedman, Rack Systems. Yeah, You'll you figure just, it out. You just heard. <laughs> you just heard through the. When did when did you guys meet? Yes, probably later '90s, probably like '97 or something. And were you on the gear page? Were you like looking at gear and stuff like that? Did you hear about Dave like through the grapevine? Is that? Yeah, I'm not sure how I met Dave. Who introduced me? Actually, I really don't know. You know, during the time it was pretty much. <laughs> You know, there, there wasn't that many people doing it. A lot of rigs were getting built and stuff. So it, it really didn't, there's not many choices, you know? Yeah. And uh, in yeah. Fact, at the time, there were probably only two. Mm -hmm. Bob Bradshaw. Yeah. And myself. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I honestly don't remember how I met you. I wonder. I almost wonder if it was like Jay from NRG or something. JB. Might have been. Had to be somebody pretty knowledgeable because obviously what you were doing was, you know, very uh, precise type of thing, building these military grade racks to go on the road with all this gear, you know? Yeah, totally. And, you know, to your credit, Dave, my rig, as complicated as it was, it never went down once. Not once. Seriously. That's good. Yeah. I had, I think there was only one time I ever had a glitch and it had nothing to do with anything you did. It was really just my JP8080 was not liking the power and I literally just had to turn it off and turn it back on and I was in business. <laughs> that was it. So what was, what was like the rack? back then that you were using oh my god it was big yeah it was a refrigerator yeah basically um i had you know when we started orgy it was jay gordon and myself and ryan shuck you know it was kind of we were like a production team and we started doing this stuff i mean we were producing all these other bands they were becoming successful and so we started doing our own stuff and, you know, from the very beginning, we knew that we wanted to do something different. We knew what we didn't want to do. We didn't know exactly what we wanted to do, but we had an idea. And so we just started kind of creating this sound out of nowhere. And part of that was that I was using a guitar synthesizer, which, you know, back in the 80s when I actually got it, my first one I actually got from Grover Jackson. He actually gave it to me. He had gone to Japan, and Roland had given him this whole GR700 setup. And when he came back, and I was out at the shop, he's like, yeah, I, I brought you back something from Japan. He's like, I, I, you're the only person that would ever know what to do with this. <laughs> That's what he said. And he gave me a Roland GR700, a whole rig. So I had that even back when I was in Rough Cut. And of course, I tried to use it then, but like my band really wasn't into it. And of course, at that time, guitar synthesizers were kind of a, you know, not cool um, for most people. For me, I thought, cool. Well, it was like when Judas Priest did that whole turbo 
album where they were using those the same guitar synthesizer i i loved it hmm. but i know they got kind of panned for that album but i feel like it was way ahead of their time obviously what they were doing so anyway i got that thing and then eventually years later this was sort of my opportunity to use it and um you know i sort of morphed it between a guitar and a synth i didn't really you know I didn't really want to use it in the way that people had done it before. I was kind of thinking like Jan Hammer, where like Jan Hammer used to play his mini Moog through a Marshall amp. And I always thought that made the synth sound so much cooler, right? Because it had this like attitude to it instead of just plugging it in, right? It's like running through a distortion box, basically, right? Yeah. So when I started using the guitar synth for Orgy, it became a big part of the sound. I had this way that I was routing it. It's a stereo instrument. So half of it was going direct through a bunch of effects and pedals and all this kind of stuff. And then the other half was going into my Marshall amp. <clears throat> so, you know, after doing the record and creating this crazy sound and setup, I'm like, how the, you know, how am I going to do this live? And that's where Dave came into the picture and, we just kind of went in there and just started to figure out how we could do the switching and the routing and, you know, cause half of it was basically going to a DI and half it was going to an amp that was mic'd. And I had multiple guitar synths. There were two different controllers. And then in the rack, there was some like a JP 8080 and a um, Korg MS 2000 and like a T seed. 2290 like a, a studio delay yeah and then like a bunch of cool pedals a tuner you know eventually i even added another amp that was like a cleaner amp so i needed to be able to switch between all of this and also go direct um yeah it was pretty pretty nutty and then i had a midi controller that was changing all the presets between all of the different uh different synth modules and the controller and all that kind of stuff so and i think dave was probably you were probably already starting to mod amps around that time right um yeah, Just, yeah. i think you were because i remember you showing me a couple that you had done back like around that time mm. which is pretty well, cool I just remember you coming in and with with this crazy routing scheme and <laughs> it sounds pretty crazy i'm like you want to do what? <laughs> um, but it worked out really well. It was really cool. And um, so some of the pedals went direct, right? Wasn't that yeah. what it all the effects? All the effects were went direct. So the direct line always had pedals on it of some sort. Pedals or the TC2290. Uh, right. Um, which was either delays, flange, chorusing. You know, various, I mean, that thing's an amazing in itself. It sounds so good. So that was kind of its own sound. And then the the other side that went to the guitar amp didn't have any pedals. It was just, a you know, my old standard Mike Morin modded Marshalls that I used for years. Yeah. What was modded? Yeah. So, so, so just, just to kind of get this, get your head around this, people, so you have a Marshall going, which is kind of the normal guitar tone, so to speak. Yeah. But then you have a direct line that's totally direct mm -hmm. with like uh, Boss Hyperfuzz, right? 
Yep. That was the main, wasn't that the main fuzz? Yes, that's the main fuzz. And then there was a phaser, a chorus, and then um, I think the rest was the 2290. I was able to do flanging and delays and all that kind of stuff with the 2290. It does a great flange, that, that rack unit. Has a very good flange. And then this was all with tuned down guitars, correct? Yeah, and then yeah, of course the other thing was all the guitars I was using, whether it be the Roland, the Parker, uh, the Jacksons, um, trying to think, the Yamahas, all the different guitars I used, they were all tuned to B flat. Wow. Because yeah. at the time, a lot of the you know new metal bands and the heavy bands at the time, Corn. Um, well, even Lincoln Park to some degree, they all tuned down, but we had to go a half step lower. <laughs> Just because. Yeah. It's corn with an D, so we're like, hmm, maybe we'll go to A. And I was like, no, A's too low. It's just too floppy, even with the heavier strings. So we went to B flat, which, of course, made the synth tracking, like, extremely difficult. <laughs> <laughs> you made it hard on yourself. But, yeah, but the thing is, the, the whole point of that for me was, you know, I wasn't looking for perfection out of those devices. My, you know, my whole kind of mo modus uh, operandi or whatever is, you know, I like weird stuff. I like things to do weird things accidentally and have happy accidents and mistakes. And, you know, and those guitar synths triggered really badly. So, you know, you could play something and all of a sudden it would just play something way cooler than, than what I just played. You know, I'd like try to play some lick and all of a sudden it would just do some crazy thing. And I'm like, oh, that's it. Done. <laughs> now, and it would never be the same twice. But that was what was kind of fun about it. And then, you know, I really would just kind of mix in the guitar because you had all these controls on the guitar where you could blend between full synth or mm. guitar. Um, so a lot of the rhythms and stuff, they're a blend of both. That way you get the attack and everything from the guitar, you know, regular playing. And then the synth is sort of in there filling, filling it in. But it was a bit difficult. I mean, I did sometimes have to learn how to play a little ahead because if it was something really rhythmic, um, the tracking was latent, you know? So I have to learn how to kind of push it a little bit to make it sound right when we were, you know, playing live and well in the studio even more so because you hear everything in the studio. But it, so it was kind of a combination of those two things that sort of made up that that sound, which I don't think anybody's ever done anything like it. I don't know if anybody wants to. <laughs> but, it sounded mean. It, it it was a huge sound. Like if you could actually hear the live rig through like a PA, it was ridiculous. It doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard before. I promise you that. It's. I mean, these were like twenty space rigs. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then I did another one for uh, the other person in the band. Um, the other person. Yeah, the other person. My <laughs> brain is not working right now. <laughs> Are you talking about Ryan? Ryan, thank you. <laughs> Poor Ryan. Sorry, I've been traveling like all day, and my it's brain okay. is just like I'm like going. And the other person, uh, uh, 
and I know his name so well. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Ryan. It's okay. He actually wanted me to ask you. I'm going to bring uh, his amp up. We're going to tweak it a little bit. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that was that was a crazy time for sure, the orgy thing. Um, yeah, we were definitely good. doing a lot of different kinds of things, musically, sonically. I mean, we weren't playing to tracks. We actually rigged our V-drums to be able to play samples and loops and all this crazy stuff. So it was, it, it was all live between what I and people. Huh? The real live band people. I know. Even though we were electronic, I mean, we were. It was very difficult, and it did not work very well in the beginning. <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> it took us a little while to get it together. Honestly, we really kind of fumbled our way through it. But it got, you know, by probably by the you know later tours, like for the second album. I mean, we really had it down, and it was sounding really good by then. First album touring, not so good, but. At least the statement was there. We had a sound and, and a look and all this other stuff, so it it seemed to work. <laughs> I remember seeing you guys at the Mayan Theater. Oh yeah, Los Angeles. I think and some some touring cycle. I don't know which touring cycle that was. I think we played there with Love and Rockets. Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah. which was amazing because that's like one of my favorite bands. Love yeah. that. Super. <laughs> I mean. It's, it's basically Bauhaus without Peter Murphy. Yeah. So, and that's kind of you know a lot of a lot of the influences that go into not only that band but Julian K our our new band where the guy that you can't remember his name is the right. same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of you know we. When we moved on from Orgy, we kind of started this other thing, and that's what we've been doing, and it's been uh, it's been really great. We've we've engaged our fans directly with crowdfunding, and Dave and I have talked a lot about this in the past of how we've kind of reinvented our our business, how we're doing things now. Just, was that it's was that through really Indigo great. Indiegogo is that what it's what it was through? It, Yes, it has been in the past. We've used Indiegogo to fund our, our projects, our records, which actually the new album that we're going to be releasing soon, Harmonic Disruptor, which is our latest album, um, that also was funded uh, with Indiegogo. Yeah, I think Pete Thorne used that, didn't he? Or I think he might have for his last album, yeah. It was either Pete Thorne or Jason Becker, one of them, because I, I know that I... Uh... I signed up for something with them, <laughs> and I paid paid for something. I got something. Hopefully, <laughs> didn't. But I for something. Got something. I can't remember either. <laughs> What's your excuse? I've been traveling all day. Uh, I worked all day. I don't know. It's later. <laughs> with his birthday yesterday, I think he maybe he went out late or oh, something. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, I did go out late. I did. Happy birthday. I didn't send you a text. I can't remember if I did or No, you did. did. You did. Thanks. Okay. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I ate so much that I was actually uncomfortable for most of the night. <laughs> so yeah. I just ate like a pig. So, but um, yeah, no, thanks. Yeah. So, so, so let's go back further. Let's go way back. 
All right, let's do it. We kind of started in the middle. Yeah. um, How far do you want to go back? (laughs) Well, how'd you become a musician? No, what was before Rough Cut? Well, I'll give you a little quick, uh, you know, I I actually learned how to play guitar pretty quickly. Um, It's kind of a funny story. I, I actually got my first guitar when I was 16. My first electric guitar, I should say. Um, and funny enough, it was an Ibanez Iceman. Like, who gets that as their first guitar? Yeah, right? that's pretty cool. Me. Because <laughs> I like weird guitars. And you know where I got that from was Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick. I always loved that he had all those guitars, and he would, like, make these crazy guitars and all that. And I think that's where I got my, my initial love for, like, the possibility of creating guitars or having, you know, strange guitars that other people don't have basically like have something unique. So, um, around that time, I actually had a friend that was, um, hired to teach me how to play guitar and he was kind of teaching me, um, scales and all this like, you know, music theory stuff. And I just didn't get it. And he, he ended up quitting. He's actually a really good friend. Um, he ended up quitting and telling my mom, yeah, I, don't, I just I can't teach him anything. I, I just don't think he has what it takes. And he quit. And, um, yeah. So my guitar kind of sat in my room for a while. And then what happened was I started teaching myself. I used to go to concerts with my cousin a lot. My cousin's a classically trained pianist. Um, he's an amazing musician, and we actually write with him and Julian Kay, and you know he's like my big brother. Um, but we used to go to concerts all the time, and so we never had good seats. So I would take binoculars with me, and I would literally watch the guitar players, like whoever it was, Angus Young, Eddie Vanny. I, I saw some amazing shows when I was a kid, mm. or later teenager. And I would just watch what they were doing, and I started to see that there was kind of this common thread that most of them, you know, what they were playing, it didn't really look that hard, you know? And so I would go home, and I would literally mimic what I saw. And all of a sudden, I was like, wow. Or whatever, you know? And I just started figuring it out on my own. Right. And... Within a couple of years, I, I got really good, really quick. And that's when the, the rough cut call came. Time they, they had always had all these guitar players from San Diego. They had Jakey Lee was the first guitar player who you guys had on the show. And I texted Dave about it, and that was pretty funny. <laughs> who? What? Now? Now? Right now? Was that? Oh, that was that was you during the show. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> that's great. And that comes into play later. Uh, I'll tell you that story briefly. But but anyway, Jake was the first rough cut guitar player, and then he left to join Ozzy, and then they got this guy Craig Goldie, who was also from San Diego. The bass player Matt Thorne, who's one of my best friends, he was from San Diego. Chris Hager, the other guitar player, was from San Diego. So they came back to San Diego looking for a guitar player. And 
you know, all of us used to hang out at Guitar Trader. That was like our big hangout. That's where Warren used to hang out and all the rat guys and we all bought our gear. And they all knew me there. And when Rough Cut came looking, they suggested me and I was at home and literally five minutes away and they came to my house because I was so in tune with what was going on in LA, I actually had all their music, their demo tapes, and I already knew their songs, <laughs> as well as many other bands from that time. Mm -hmm. So they came in and I just started playing one of their songs and they were like, wow, you're coming with us tonight. And I literally left that night for LA. <laughs> and, you know, within a few days I got the gig and one thing started leading to another, and then, you know, we went to Europe and came back and got signed, did our first record, and that's, I think, where not only did I learn to be a much better guitar player pretty quickly, but I got to work with all these amazing producers in Rough Cut. I mean, the first album was done by Tom Allum and engineered by Mark Dodson, who also is a great producer and engineer. Um, who, you know, did Judas Priest and, you know, a lot of some of my favorite metal records. Um, and then Jack Douglas and Jay Messina, who did like John Lennon and Aerosmith and all kinds of stuff, did our second record. So that's, I had already been recording and, and I've always had a technical background um, with electronics and all that kind of stuff. So when I got in the studio, that was it. Like I was like, I knew that I was always going to want to do that as well, <laughs> not, not just play guitar or whatever, but I was really fascinated by that whole process of recording. And I feel fortunate that I got to be around in the era of big boards, big studios, tape machines, all the gear that was outboard and real. Real stuff. Yeah, the real stuff that now I have all the virtual stuff, right? But it's, it's fun to, you know, I've been have seen that whole transition, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. of course all the musical transitions over the years, all the different bands that I've been in and all of that. But anyway, you know, so I, I did rough cut and that was kind of, it just sort of, I mean, I was really in love with new wave music and punk music as much as I was metal. And I just kind of ended up in a metal band, <laughs> even though I, you know, I still had this kind of secret love for all of this music that was happening, like gothic music and the beginnings of industrial music and new wave. And you, you should have been, you should have been, you should have been born in Detroit, with that. <laughs> right? There's a weird thing in Detroit with that background, like exactly what you said with the metal and then the new wave and 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 the, you know later the house music and all the electronic and well, techno started in Detroit. Yeah. So, which is, I love techno as well. But yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you're right. But you're, from, but you're from New York, right, Amir? Originally, I was I was born in New York, and I lived there till I was about 11 or 12. And then my mom moved us out to San Diego. Ah, okay. I moved away so, from New York around the same time. Okay. Yeah. So. And where do you live again, Mark? I'm in, I'm in Florida. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, but I, okay. I, I was in, I'm in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale. Oh, okay, but I, I used to live in Brooklyn, New York, and Queens area and stuff like that in the in the city. And then when I was about ten, I moved. So I was curious. I saw that you were from New York, so I was just curious when. Yeah, no, I 
grew up there, but then, you know, spent all my teenage years basically in San Diego. And that's, that's really where all the, it actually started for me, it started with electronics. Um, I started fixing things <laughs> like my mom, my mom's TV would stop working or the stereo would not work. And I learned how to test tubes and, you know, because all that stuff was, was tube driven and, uh, you know, powered and it sounded amazing of course when I think back on it but so I started fixing things I started building things I actually built my my very first stereo I, I I didn't literally build it but I kind of put it all together I built the speakers I had a quadraphonic system which for probably a 12 or 13 year old is kind of weird <laughs> <laughs> But I, I literally had a quadraphonic record player, a quadraphonic receiver, and then I built speakers from components and old cabinets that like our neighbors didn't want anymore or whatever. And then I hung them in the four corners of my room. Wow. So I had like a surround system when I was like 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So there was something, you know, obviously yeah. there. <laughs> with, with, with the, yeah, there was something there. With the quadraphonic reference, though, you're really dating yourself on that one. <laughs> All right. Everybody knows how old I am. <laughs> so, hey, you know, I mean, I remember when I got my first pair of good speakers, like Boston acoustic speakers in college, you know, and I was just like, oh, man, you know, like just just being able to blast stuff. So I can only imagine quadraphonic, you know, the whole thing. That's cool. Well, I, I actually put my speakers together, though. Like, I, I literally sourced the components, sourced the crossover, and then, you know, kind of made my own speakers, basically. That's crazy at that age. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, you know, so, so that, I, was doing, I was doing that even before making music, basically. Yeah, before even playing guitar. No, yeah, totally before that, or even really listening to like bands and stuff that didn't really start till a little bit later. Um, not not much, but then you know I started listening to music, and then I actually, funny enough, wanted to buy a synthesizer. I wanted a Moog. <laughs> I wanted to play a Moog. Yeah. And my cousin that I was talking about, my cousin James. He ended up buying the Moog before me. He's a little bit older, had a job, you know. So he ended up getting the Moog, and I was just like, all right, well, what am I going to do now? And then that's where the whole guitar thing kind of came in. But it it totally came full circle over the years, you know, coming back to Orgy again and being able to get that synth and the guitar and everything to kind of come together. And, of course, after that and now, I mean, I play keyboards and, I do a lot of programming, and so I kind of get to have the best of both worlds now. <laughs> That's cool. Right. So the all right, so, still, what's that, Dave? You're still into stereos. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I heard deeply. Yeah, I've kind of gone back to you know, I've basically built a you know a whole not built it but you know compiled all these things I probably would have wished I could have had when I was a kid, like this giant Marantz receiver and these huge infinity speakers. And, you know, they sound amazing. Yeah. Wow. 
sounds amazing. And, you know, I collect vinyl and. You know what, you know, what always amazes me is that with all the technology we have now, all the advances in A to D converters, D to A converters, all this stuff, it all just sounds like crap. <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, the the uh, the lost art of audio, like audio design. Yeah. The the surrounding components around the D to A and A to D is the problem with stuff today. You have a great a, uh, D to A, A to D now, but no one knows how to design around it. Yeah. I mean, yes, some high-end studio equipment, of course, but, I mean, for consumer, it's a lost art. Yeah. I mean, if you looked at a service manual of an old Marantz receiver. Oh, yeah. It, it's like this detailed, like. A novel. Novel, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's a shame, really, that's lost. I think I think a lot of our stuff in life is lost. I mean, how to plaster a wall is lost kind of you know how to you know mm -hmm. old world craftsmanship does anyone know how to do it anymore you know in architecture or something like that not really well i think the what i call the golden age of of audio was like the mid to late 70s that's mm -hmm. where I, I feel like some of the best you know the coolest the warmest kind of fun gear was made, you know, that's where all the, the stuff that I have, um, at least the, the, the receiver and the speakers, the turntable and stuff, I don't really mess with old ones because they break a lot. And of course yeah. the cartridge is new and, and super high fidelity and all that, but it, it really has a sound that you just can't get anywhere else. You have to rebuild them, of course, they all have to be recaptured. Because they're forty years old or whatever, you know. But it's worth it, and it's become a thing. Yeah. It's definitely become a thing. There's, you see, you see that stuff now. It's, it's very expensive to to get any of that, and I think that's probably why you know why I still like tube amps, like real amps, and I use a cable. I hate wireless. <laughs> I just it just doesn't sound as good. I feel At least not yet. You know, I mean, I've tried a lot of modeling things, and obviously I use plugins in the studio, you know, initially, but at the end of the day, if I want, like, a big tone, I have to have real amps, whether it be bass or guitar or whatever. It, you know, a lot of times it's a blend of the plugins with, with the real amp, but there's always something missing with the plugins. The plugins... For one thing, what I find is that when you, and a lot of people do this with a lot of plugin stuff, you know, like with synthesizer plugins, with amp modeling, mic modeling, whatever it is. And the thing is, if you do an A-B comparison when it's just that, mm -hmm. you've got mm -hmm. the, the amp model, you've got the, the real amp, and you go back and forth and you go, wow, that sounds pretty close. But when, when you can really tell, though, is when you start mixing. Because that's when that's when the fake stuff disappears. <laughs> we've, we've talked yeah. about this before many times, and you're right. It's a hundred. Yeah, we, we've had we've had this discussion like uh, with my friend, my uh, sound guy friend Tom Abraham, when he was on our show. Um, 
he was saying when he was with Keith Urban, they had a backup rig with an Axe Effects, you know. Yeah. And they dialed it in, you know, perfectly where they couldn't tell when they were switching between it. Right. Where they couldn't tell. Yeah. So one night they're going to decide to use it in the show. Yeah. Switch halfway through and go to the B rig. Yeah. And, um, and the minute he did, did that, it, the guitar was gone from the PA. Yeah. It was just it disappeared. And he kept put, trying to push it up higher. That wasn't working. It just disappeared. just didn't sit anymore. Yeah. It sit properly that's, in the mix. There's something that's with the exact. frequencies. Yeah. I don't, the, or the yeah. harmonic content of a real amp versus the modeled. Well, it's just, it's like everything. And I know Dave understands this better than anybody it's like you know you go all the way down to the guitar the pickup and then the amp and everything else but there's just things when it's the right thing they just kind of poke through you know like those frequencies come through in the places you want them to and i feel that a lot of the you know there are some really good plugins and i do use them a lot um but at the end of the day it's like Typically, I always do have to kind of reinforce it one way or another because they just kind of start to do this in the mix. They just start to vanish. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes I don't want the guitars or the bass or whatever it is to be so featured, right? Sometimes it's more about the electronics or the drums and the vocals. And you really don't want that big of a guitar sound. Then sometimes the plugin's great because it kind of just puts it back here still sounds good but you know but if you want to get anything that's kind of a little more crushing or you know like a rock sound of some sort whatever that is but i find that i just i have not been able to do it yet with just plugins mm-hmm. you know i've got to i've got to have a real amp and the amp will definitely be probably the most featured thing it'll be the most the forefront, everything else is sort of reinforcing it. Um, like for our new album, um, it's it's really a hybrid. The sounds are really a hybrid now because I have more, even more tools. So not only not only do I have you know maybe pedals running direct, I have plugins and then I have real amps. So it's a lot of it is actually a hybrid of all three now for me. With and I've actually given Dave one of our new songs. Um, that he heard it was one of our super aggressive. It's actually kind of our like our first single or whatever. We made just made a video for it, and that will be coming out previous to the album. I'm not sure when yet because we're we're still working on that whole plan. The record's pretty much done. I'm actually like mixing the last song mm. right now. So, mm. but yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been fun experimenting with you know, having even more tools now where I have the real amps. Plus, sometimes I'm using direct things and then plugins. So what amps are you yeah. using? Um, I don't use any Friedman amps. <laughs> <just>. <laughs> yeah, they suck. They're horrible. There's a bar in Detroit. <laughs> uh, called Smalls. Yeah, Matt played there. You played there, right? Yeah, yeah. And they, the saying, they used to have a saying above the door. It's like, welcome to Smalls. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. 
No, I, I have I Friedman picks like that. Yeah, I have a, a, a BE50 and a BE. I think I used the BE100 on this. Um, I don't think did I? I guess I had the BE50, but I I just went with the BE100 because I just figured it's more. Right. <laughs> I remember when you had, when you first had the B one hundred and then you said, Yeah, I'm gonna get the fifty and maybe I might get rid of my hundred and now you still have both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I won't do that either. Well, it's kind of a funny quick story about how I even came upon that because I I, I don't remember why, but I was at Guitar Center and happened to be in their little specialty tone room and I saw Dave's amps. It was the first time I'd actually seen like a Friedman amp in the wild. You know, I knew he'd been making them, modding them, and he had different names that he was doing and under for a while. But I saw this, like, Friedman thing, and I'm like, is this Dave's amp? <laughs> I think it was a pink taco. Yeah. was the first one. And so, anyway, I plugged into it, and I was just floored immediately. I was like, holy shit, this thing is so cool. And then they had a BE100 in there, too, and I plugged into that, and it just blew my head off. So I immediately, like texted Dave and I'm like, dude, are these your amps? <laughs> we got to talk. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So we ended up, ended up getting one of those, which I was actually using for the rough cut reunion stuff, um, on monsters of rock and some of the shows that we did. And it was cool too, because when I was doing monsters of rock, um, Akira from loudness had a, BE 100 and so I was able to borrow his bring mine and borrow his so that I could do my stereo rig right uh, nice. so and then when we just toured last year with Julian K Ryan and I decided that we were gonna make the switch to Friedman's um, for the tour with like little 2 by 12 cabs which you can see in some of the pictures that we've been posting mm -hmm. uh, we made custom black and white versions because it kind of fits our our thing our whole california noir our whole vibe so we just kind of made black and white ones they kind of look kind of a little like high watts or something right they're kind of cool yeah was super, yeah. super cool yeah i mean dave had one that he i guess you did it for yourself or whatever and i'm like dude that looks awesome yeah you know the problem every time i make myself an amp <laughs> i'm the person that wants it yeah. <laughs> that insists on having it. No, no, it's happened every time. Oh, that's a good well, thing. Not, well, not you, but like, you know, it's like my black and white one that I think you saw at the time. There's a B50. Yeah, that went to John Shanks. And yep. then, you know, I had a black and white small box, and that went to Ted Nugent's producer <laughs> because he used it on Ted Nugent's record. And, yeah. and, and, and he goes, I got to have an amp. Can I have that one? Yeah. It's always going to have that one. And, and several other times. I think I think uh, my B100 that I once had is with um, is with um, uh, System of a Down. Oh. Yeah. That's in, in Darren. And there's been other ones, too. Hasn't that happened I can with your never... guitars, too? Uh, not so much with the guitars. I've been, I've been a little stingy on that. I'm like, no, you can't have it. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but that, was, that wasn't, that wasn't mine, but you liked that one. I did. 
There was one I wasn't sure. Well, I know Sammy Buller got that really awesome one that's transparent and everything. But there was one recently that someone was like, I forget what it was, and they were like, Dave, I want your guitar. And you're like... Hey, look at that, custom backplate. Oh, nice. Thanks to Grover. Yeah, I went to Grover and had him uh, whip that up. This thing sounds amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm actually... We're, Ryan and I are producing this band. I think actually you're going to like it, Dave. It's a, just a rock and roll five-piece band, but they're all teenagers. They're really good. They're called Slaves to Humanity. Oh, cool. Um, anyway, I'm using this on that, and it sounds really awesome. <laughs> um, That's cool. Yeah, that was, I mean, I guess we could talk a little bit about Grover and, and all of that now. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Oh, yeah, in the rough cut days... Yeah. So, yeah, when I, obviously when I first started playing in bands, I was already fascinated with weird shapes. And one of the first guitars I ever bought was a Charvel Starbody, and it was purple. And I got it at Guitar Trader in San Diego. And that became my main guitar. And actually, even into when I got in Rough Cut, I still had that guitar. It ended up getting kind of bastardized and made into two guitars because at the time I needed a backup. So it ended up being split off uh, into two separate guitars. But that's around the time, I guess I was about 20 when I met Grover, and they were still in San Dimas. And he really just kind of took me under his wing and just started showing me like how to make guitars and that's when I started painting my guitars with the airplane graphics, the fighter plane graphics. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of those early guitars were made out of spare parts from what they used to call the bone room. Which <laughs> they were seconds. They were like pieces that for whatever reason, you know, they got thrown in the bone room, right? But the, uh, I mean, I made these guitars though and they were amazing. But, you know, we they, if they had some sort of weird defect, they probably got painted over or whatever. And you, you would never know. I remember one of my guitars, the fingerboard had, like, spots on it or something. And it's, like, nothing that would ever really matter. But we ended up making guitars together. And he used to walk me around and actually show me, like, the whole process. Not, not only, you know, the machinery and the handwork and all of that, but he would, you know, we'd go through and pick the woods and he'd explain why this body is better than that body and this neck and that and why all this does this. And so I learned kind of how to make guitars from him. And so, you know, made a lot of guitars at that time um, in Rough Cut. And then over the years, kind of continued doing stuff. And I guess it wasn't really until the, the orgy thing where I started to really branch out and really kind of make some crazy shit, basically. Jackson came back to me and said, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you back with us, basically. And, and I said, all right, well, I want to make some really different guitars. And so that's when we made the Roswell Star, which was kind of this crazy interpretation of their Roswell guitar, but it, it was a star body. And I kind of went full circle back to that very first star body that I had, but a, a new version of it. And, um, what year and then after, um, 
guess it must have been about 97. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 97. Grover wasn't there anymore, but a lot of the people, um, the older, you know, crew was still there. And so they, they just approached me and said, Hey, why don't you come back? And let's, you know, your band is very futuristic. Let's, you know, we have this crazy guitar already. Let's do some more. And I said, all right. So I started drawing things and I created this guitar called a disruptor, which is a super weird guitar. It kind of looks like a, like a space beetle or like those, remember those old box phantom guitars? Yeah. It, it, it sort of, started with that and then I kind of added some things to it but anyway so we ended up making these crazy guitars and they're super collectible now because there's not very many of them um and then it just didn't really pan out there you know I was gonna do we were supposed to do like a signature model and and actually create them and they made all the prototypes but then the whole thing fell apart and everything got kind of weird so I ended up moving on to Yamaha hmm. at, at your shop, Dave, uh, yeah. Eric, Eric, right. He was there when I was there at your shop and Eric said, why don't you come over and look at the stuff that we're doing? <laughs> and, and then eventually I created that, which is my Yamaha signature, which we can't see. I'll bring it closer. <laughs> I don't have the other guitars here. I probably should have. But that's nice. You know, it was based off of something that they they needed to work off of something a little more standard. So it was really just me kind of tweaking something to make it a little more me custom pickup and all the facets and the inlays like barcodes and I still you know we still use these I made one for Ryan too we have a seven string version these are extremely rare but they were production models this is pretty beat up but this is the seven string version mm. so we still use these because they're baritones uh. Super cool. Big into baritones. I haven't been able to talk Dave into making a baritone yet. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. I, I love baritones just because I feel like it's like anything you do on it, it just sounds different. Even when you play the same same chords and the same thing, it's just it just to me it just sounds cooler and makes it again unique, which is you know, one of the things that I've always liked to do is have guitars that, you know, make people look and go, whoa, what is that? <laughs> and, yeah, so playing a baritone, too, it's, you know, it's got a heavy sound. Um, but it also, you know, even when you're playing more conventionally, it just sounds different, it sounds fuller than just a regular guitar. So even in Julian K, we still use baritones. But we tune to B, because some guitars are tuned standard, and then some are B. That way we can interchange. You know, it's like Ryan can play a standard guitar and I can play the baritone, which is a lot of times how it goes, but it, it depends. A lot of the newer stuff, we're using all the baritones again for everything. The whole new album is all the baritones. That's 
So what's your, um, on the BE-100, like, what's your favorite setting tone on there? Um, that's a good question, because I know there is, there are some settings. I'd have to, I have pictures of my settings that I keep in my phone, but I don't want to go looking through that right now. <laughs> no, that's cool. I was just curious. Like, do you, you know, do you have it on high gain, or are you, like, a lower gain guy? I'm just curious what your, like, optimal tone is that you... If you could describe uh, it. Well, I, I definitely like high gain, but I think probably the BE channel just cranked probably is, is, is more. I don't know if it's the HB channel that I was using. I think it's probably the BE channel. Yeah, I think you're using the BE, yeah. Yeah. And then I think one of the switches in the back is up, maybe the middle one, I think, or down. I can't remember. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's... You can get a lot of different sounds out of those things. Um, yeah. I, I definitely like a heavier tone. I think, um, you know, using a baritone has a lot more low end. So I did have to sort of adjust some things. I, I know I talked to Dave about this too, because the those amps have a lot of low end, which sounds good on a standard tune guitar. But when I used it with the baritone, it was it was too much. Yeah. And I ended up going back the next day and kind of retweaking everything. And then I was able to, I, I got it where I needed it to go for the baritone too. But the first day I brought it home, I'm like, oh, this is too thick. Mm. And I loved it in rough cut because although we tune a half step down, the bottom end was awesome. <laughs> I like a lot of low end in guitar. I always have. I'm not one of those like super like, screechy bright kind of sounding guitar guys i never have been i've always kind of liked it a little bit of a duller sound overall meatier and duller yeah i like low end in guitar like real thick low end even in orgy obviously with the baritones dropped to b flat and the synth and all that other yeah. stuff that sounds... had a little bit of low end yeah it was yeah. Huge. <laughs> Just a tiny bit, just a little tiny scotch. Yeah. But it was good because, you know, like what Ryan did in Orgy and, and even still what Ryan does now is like he tends to play a lot of the higher parts. So you have this like nice spectrum, you know, where he would kind of cover the sparkle and then I'm carrying the bottom, you know. So it works really well together. That's cool. Hey, you know, we had a, yeah. question, a question from uh, Timothy Pierce. Okay. Uh, he said, what led to uh, your Warplane style guitars? Yeah, that was my the dad that I grew up with. Not my biological father, but my dad that adopted me. He was a pilot. Oh, okay. Cool. Yep, he was a pilot for American for like 40 years. Um, but before that, he was in World War II and he flew B-17s. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so I had a... Uh, fascination with that from a very young age. Um, I used to build model airplanes, and when I was, you know, probably eight or nine years old, I had them all hanging, you know, yeah. awesome. yeah. in my room. But so I, that fascination there, and all the World War II stuff, Army, you know, camouflage, everything was was there from a very young age, and 
at the at the time when I was doing the stuff with Charvel, no one had ever really done anything like that. There might have been some camo guitars. Like I think I think George Lynch had like a camo guitar. Maybe someone else had something with some camouflage, but I immediately just thought, what if I just started doing all this, you know, these like nose art, warplane graphics and different yeah. things. So I just kind of ran with it. And, you know, each guitar had a theme. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a different country, basically. You know, I had Do you jerk. have those guitars, though? I don't, no. I, I actually, a private collector has those. Oh. Yeah, they, they, were, um, they were just sitting in storage for so long that, um, I don't know. At a certain point, I mean, I have so much gear, I kind of moved on from that phase of my life, not ever thinking that Rough Cut would ever get back together, which we did a couple of years ago and play some shows. I was just like, yeah, that's, I'm probably never going back to that whole era. And yeah. Kind of got an offer that I couldn't refuse kind of deal. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's that. I gave one to my son. Uh, yeah, that was that. That's cool. We um we got a super chat from Mycon Taveras. He says, "My favorite gear talk." Well, thanks, Mycon. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm saying your name right, but hope so. Um, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Um, we also got another question from Cecil Music, who says, "What's your memories of recording Rough Cut Wants You? It's such a great record." <laughs> that was Jack Douglas and Jay Messina. Um, they had literally just gotten back together to do our record. They hadn't worked together in years. I mean, they did all the Aerosmith records, John Lennon, like all this amazing stuff. Um, I think Jack was probably going through a phase of trying to get his life back together <laughs> at the time. Cause it was, it was kind of crazy actually. Um, he was like sleeping in the studio and stuff when we were working, but it was such an amazing experience. He's such an amazing producer and he's very talented um, player as well. I mean, he plays multiple as most producers usually do well now, but back then a lot of the producers, you know, they all played instruments, drums. He did a bunch of percussion on our record, um, but it was kind of, um, we were kind of not in the greatest place, our label, you know, we did our first record and it's the old shitty story of our, our A&R guy left us like right when our record came out. So we were kind of doomed from the very beginning really, because we were just kind of a little fish in a big sea at Warner Brothers. And it was a shame because, I mean, we had Dio behind us, you know, Wendy and, and Ronnie I was took us on that. Yeah. Wendy and Ronnie, I mean, they were, they were great to us back then. Ronnie took us on tour. We were direct support, no other band to Dio playing every stadium in the United States, not stadium, every arena. That's amazing. Some and we did it multiple times. And the, the label didn't even bother to put any records in the stores. I mean, we would have just sold records just off of, you know, I mean, even if 10% of the people thought we were cool, we would have sold records, but they couldn't be bothered to do anything like that. 
So by the second record, it was kind of like, all right, well, we're going to give you another chance, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I don't know. We got really lucky getting Jack and Jay to do it, but, you know, they came in and they were just very musical guys. Like, I just remember learning so much from them, just like the guys on our first record. I mean, not just technically, but just musically and learning, of course, lots, hearing hearing lots of stories about Aerosmith and, you know, getting to hear all the crazy stuff that they used. Yeah. (laughs) But it was, you know, it was a different record. I I think we really should have stuck more to what we were doing on the first record, the darker, Mm. the darker, Mm. kind of heavier sound. It got a bit light and poppier on the second record and even the look and everything. It just, we had really kind of lost our way. I mean, there's still some good songs on it. I, I'm not slagging it, but I just kind of feel like what we did with the first record really kind of was more the definitive sound, and I wish we would have kind of stuck with that. And the second record didn't do as well as the first, which, you know, and we were done. <laughs> How'd you hook up with uh, the Dio's? Um, there was already a connection there before I was in the band. Um, Ronnie had taken the band under his wing and was producing a lot of the early demos with Jake and with, um, Craig Goldie and all of, all of them. So they were already involved when I got in, in, in the band, but the band didn't get signed until I got in the band and we were signed relatively quickly after I got in the band. That must've been exciting for you. It was amazing. I mean, I was 20 years old. You know, and it was like, I literally, just like I said, they came to my house, I auditioned, then I went up the next day and auditioned, got the gig, and next thing you know, I'm in L.A. playing in a band that's popular, and, you know, I think it was probably six months later, we got a record deal. Killer. But, but it, all came, it all came crashing down relatively quickly. You know, I learned a lot of hard lessons from that. Um, but... It was all good stuff. I'm really grateful for those times and the experiences that I had and the band because all of them made me a lot better player because, I mean, I was, you know, 21 years old. I'd only been playing a few years. And my focus at the time when I was really learning was to play lead because I just thought that was cool, you know. And I listened to, like, Michael Schenker, Jeff Beck, Uli John Roth, um, Alan Holdsworth. It's kind of a weird, mm. weird combo of people, but those were like my early guitar influences. And um, I really learned how to like do rhythm making the records and being in that band because they were all so seasoned and su- such great players, all of them, that. I had to kind of rise to the occasion as far as rhythmically, you know, because I'd been so focused on playing leads, you know, I could play rhythm, but not like that, not like at the level that those got, how tight everyone was. That's where I really learned. I learned really quickly. Plus again, great producers on those records. You know, these, these are guys that worked with, you know, huge bands. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He rose to the challenge. That's awesome to get the knowledge, you know, to be able to pick their brains. And they were so awesome. 
they I think they actually liked that I was interested in the recording part of it. It wasn't just like, ah, big party, let me do my part and get the hell out of here kind of thing. It was like, what does that do? How do you do that? And what's what's that? You know, like everything. I wanted to learn all of it. <laughs> so that that was amazing for me and I'm super grateful and happy that I got to do all of those, you know, experiences plus all the touring that we did. I mean, Ronnie Ronnie was really good to us. Yeah. I, that was a once in a lifetime experience for sure. And to be friends with a lot of those people from that era and be, you know, around. And I guess that's, I can circle into the, that Jake's story, but basically yeah. what happened, rough cut kind of, was sort of over because Paul left or singer left to be in quiet riot. Um, around that time, Jake left Ozzy, I guess to do Badlands or whatever, but you know, I mean, I, yeah, he got fired. Oh, he got fired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I, I never really got into the dirt of it all, but, um, around that time, since I was out of rough cut and everything, the guys in the band, um, was Randy Castile and Phil Susan and Jake actually suggested that they get me. <laughs> and this is when that huge cattle call thing was going on, right? So I went in there, basically got like a you know shortcut right in to to start playing with them. And at the time, really, the only other person they were really considering was Zach. Of course, got the gig, rightfully so. Um, I felt a little out of place, honestly. It was a strange feeling. Um, I loved Randy Rhodes when I was growing up. I loved those first two Aussie records. They're amazing. And here I am in that spot now. <laughs> like, I have this opportunity, right? And it was, like, really strange. Like, I, I felt really like it wasn't for me. Was it learning, yeah. that, learning that material and playing that material that wasn't for you, or was, what, what was no, it? it? No, I had all that part of it. I mean, I grew up listening to that music, so, you know, playing Crazy Train and all this stuff, and of course I had to play, like, Bark at the Moon, some of Jake's stuff. Um, and it, it was just surreal to be in the room with Ozzy, and here I am, like, you know, it, it wasn't that much amount of time from when I was like idolizing Randy Rhodes and seeing this whole thing happen to me being in rough cut to me being here I am with Ozzy I'm wait a minute I'm playing with Ozzy right now <laughs> so like eating Indian food and it's like running down his face as he's there you know <laughs> sing, he's up there singing right and I'm just like looking at this and I'm just like wow like an out-of-body experience right now that this is all like happening and then he would come over to me and you know I'm playing the the solos my way I don't I've never finger tapped I, I just stop my thing so I, I I have really long fingers so I would do it like one hand all those little parts and and Ozzy was like right there <laughs> when I was doing, like, he would literally be like on his knees, like looking right at me as I was playing. You know how he does all those crazy things that he does, right? Right, right. Like sitting here trying to play, and I'm like, 
don't think you're going to try and pick me up or anything because I'm not Randy Rhodes. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I've got my foot out. Like, stay over there. Or don't don't pull my hair. <laughs> No, it was it was really amazing, but you know it wasn't it really wasn't for me. Like I, I could kind of tell, and Zach was really nice and really sweet, and um, we would always kind of run into each other going in and out of the studio, and I'd see him at the Rainbow, and he's like, "Hey man, I think you know I really think you're gonna get the gig," and I was just like, "No, no, no, I'm not getting. You're gonna get the gig. I promise you, you're gonna get the gig, not me." And, you know, for one thing, they definitely did not want to go through what they went through with Jake because Jake was also in Rough Cut and managed by Wendy Dio. And I, I just, you know, aside from whatever playing things, I, I don't think they wanted to go through all that again, dealing with getting another, you know, another guy from Rough Cut and dealing with mm. all of that. You know, it was like they like to always have some new undiscovered person and all that. And that was certainly not me. And. Honestly, it, it just really wasn't me at that time anymore. Like it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't really click for me. I, 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 I didn't know, but I feel like I knew that I was going somewhere else, which eventually became orgy and doing all this other stuff on my own and creating my own thing, you know? Were there other guitar players at the time also trying out or was it just between you and Zach at the time? Oh, there! I know they had a lot of guitar players, and there were some that you know played with with Ozzy for a little bit too, and still did, like Joe Holmes, who is also a friend of mine, um, and some other people, you know. But at that point, I'm pretty sure it was kind of narrowed down to really like Zach or me. Hmm. Pretty sure at that point, I and could. Then, and then Joe got it later. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the, and I believe that there's I believe they recorded it, <laughs> so there's probably some recordings of me playing with Ozzy, which is crazy. Uh, that, wouldn't that be awesome to have? Wouldn't you love only that? to surface later? <laughs> yeah, I think it was recorded on one of those Akai real to remember those Akai things with the cassette tapes. They were horrible though. The video cassette tapes. Yeah, yeah. remember those things? Yeah, I remember those. It was like a 16 track, I think. Right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, those things horrible though they the dropouts and like those tapes are probably right well they're probably they, yeah it's probably all gone That's but funny. a fun a fun story and and actually jake from what i understand actually told him you know like put in a good word for me basically besides phil and randy who i always got along with really well they they definitely pushed for me to come in and all that so that it was very flattering and i'm to this day very flattered that i got that opportunity you know even just to do that to be able to tell this story you know it's yeah, pretty that's, fun that's awesome that's very cool um keith watson actually has uh he says talk about dead by sunrise yeah that's another big project um it's a it's a you know it's a little bit of a sore subject for us because of what happened with Chester it's it's a it's tough you know it's been it's been tough since he's been gone to talk about that or play any of that or do any of it but that was uh it was amazing project that that we did together you know um Chester when we were in orgy we met 
the Lincoln Park guys. We were, I think we were doing our second record and Lincoln Park was in the other studio. We were at NRG um, Studios. They were in A and we were in C or B, sorry, B. And um, we, Ryan actually heard this guy like warming up in the hallway and it was Chester. And he's, and he, Ryan's always the guy that makes friends with everybody. It's just his personality. So he like went over there and just became best friends with him instantly. And then we all started co-mingling and hang, hanging out and realized, oh, they're on the same label as us. And wow, this guy is a really good singer and all, all this stuff. And we ended up taking them on tour, uh, Lincoln Park and Disturbed, open for orgy on a tour is crazy because they completely blew us out of the water both bands <laughs> but hmm. we just we, we started having this relationship with Chester over the years and you know Ryan and I became really good friends with him and his family and um, you know when we started Julian K he actually wanted to be the singer of Julian K <laughs> hmm. wow. um, but the music we were doing, especially in the beginning of Julian K, was very electro. It was like so opposite and, and not really like his thing, you know. And it was, of course, very cute and very flattering that he really wanted to be a part of it. And he did end up helping us and he did end up doing stuff with us, with the band. But what ended up happening was we, um, we started realizing that Chester had all these songs that he was writing that he kind of really hadn't nowhere to go with them. And so when we started hearing these songs, we were like, wow, these are some amazing stuff here. And so we, we started to formulate this idea of, you know, Julian Kay being more of this production team or, you know, project. And it wasn't really just about that band that we could also, we could also be Dead by Sunrise, basically. But that Dead by Sunrise would be the place where Chester could nurture his his ideas, all the the song ideas would start with him, but we would build them together as producers and as a band and as writers. We would finish we would finish them together, but all the initial ideas would come from him. So he had a place like an outlet for all of his ideas. Which you know, if you listen to the record and you listen to the lyric, it's it's very dark. The whole album is very dark, and it really kind of shows really more of his psyche than probably most people knew until, of course, what happened. It's kind of all laid out there on the record. And for us, of course, you know, we're the goth guys. You know, we all our stuff is very dark, too. So it was like, for us, we were we loved it because it was like, you know, the dark Chester. You know, we, we never really realized how dark it could get, unfortunately. Right. We learned a lot of that when we were touring together. You know, we definitely got to see some things that we were kind of like, huh. Maybe, you know, some subtle signs of what was to come, but none of us expected what happened, of course. Um, but, you know, doing that project with him um, and making that record was was really amazing. I mean, we, we did it in this room right here. I mean... This is where the bulk of that was created and recorded and written. Um, and 
we, you know, I wish we could have done more. You know, I really, I really wish that we could have had more time with him, you know, because he was a, a very special and extremely talented guy. You know, there's a lot there. And I mean, we used to call him Golden Throat because, I mean, the guy, ah, his voice is just, he had a thing, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Is there any unreleased stuff that you that you have or? Um, you know, I think there is a couple of songs, but you know, we've we've never even in Julian K or Orgy or any of these bands, most of the stuff that we do ends up being kind of what the album is. There usually isn't a lot of cast off stuff, although I can contradict myself now because Julian K created a sixty four track release called the time capsule that we put out a couple years ago that had an entire album of stuff that you know didn't make any of the other records oh, but, wow. but <laughs> yeah, i mean m- most of the time no there wasn't a lot of um there wasn't a lot of extra stuff but there i'm sure there is some stuff i think there is a couple of songs you know we just honestly it's been kind of a you know delicate thing especially for ryan and myself it's uh i can imagine it's just yeah it's just sad you know yeah yeah very very sad and um but you know the i'm very proud of the record and i'm really happy that we were able to to do that and 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 spend you know the time that we did with chester and you know we traveled all over the world and lincoln park was actually really great to us too i mean they they let us close their shows while they were on a world tour we would come out instead of them doing an encore we did it wow (laughs) we would play a couple songs and then they would come out and do their encore i mean that was like pretty pretty damn cool that's very cool especially when they were (laughs) the headliner right i mean yeah so it was always kind of a surprise every night. You never knew what was going to happen, you know, because we would come out there and people would be like, what the heck is going on? You know, but I think it was fun. You know, it was, it was something different. Right, right. So how, how, did, how did Julian Kay start? Like, so you may have mentioned that, but... And, and... Uh, not, I mean, I didn't really go into any detail, but I mean, Orgy basically disintegrated, um after i mean it was already disintegrating by the second record but by the third record it was like we were in really bad shape and ryan and i were writing a lot together and it just we couldn't get the band to do anything like it just became so dysfunctional um the or your singer well i think we all know that (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you know I mean, the band was not working anymore, just wasn't working. So, um, you know, Ryan and I had been prolific and we were writing a lot of stuff. And we just started messing around, not really even thinking to do anything else. And it just kind of became this side project that we didn't expect. And then when Orgy just, we couldn't do anything anymore. I mean, literally, it was just dead in the water um we just started doing julian k because 
We had a lot of stuff we were doing. People were interested in it. We were getting offers, record deals. Um, you know, Chester loved what we were doing and, and said, look, you know, when you guys get this together, we'll take you out on tour. He totally did that. <laughs> we got to <laughs> tour with Linkin Park on their, their first uh, Project Revolution tour. We had a great spot on that as well. So, um, you know, it just sort of happened out of the dysfunction of Orgy and it became mm. our main focus. And that's your, your main focus now for the most yeah, part? Yeah, that's, yep. Um, yeah, we've been doing this for quite some time. We're on our like sixth album now. And so basically like it's, you know, that's my labor of love is creating the music that we love and connecting with our fans and being able to produce and, and mix other bands. I, I work, you know, in between the two, that's really what I do now. And so I've been doing that for many years. I started engineering, producing and mixing, um, professionally around the mid nineties. Had some had some early success with the first Eels record, um, and then a bunch of heavy bands: Cold Chamber, Spine Shank, Danzig, mm. uh, and then of course Orgy, doing well. So I was doing a lot of work back then, and then you know mostly was focusing on on just doing Julian K for a while, but now I'm kind of back producing and mixing a lot of bands now again, as well as doing the Julian K stuff. Right. Diversify. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, you have to these days, right? In this day and age. Yes. Yeah. Well, the music, yeah, the music industry is a, is a fickle bitch. So you have to, you have to, you know, ride those waves when you can. And then when it, you know, when that wave is over, you got to figure out how to get on the next one. So, and that's pretty much what I've done since I was 20, 20 years old, you know, but I always try to be involved in music, whatever it is, it's got to be music. I mean, I've, I've had a run an electronic music label that, um, Foo, the other guy that I work with and Julian K is another producer engineer. Um, he's a member of Julian K as well. Um, we, we did a, a thing called Circuit Freak, which was strictly like techno, electro, club music, way before the whole EDM thing broke. Um, we did it all incognito <laughs> and had some pretty good success, not only with that, but with our label. And that was, that was really interesting and fun to do something completely electronic, you know, club music, basically, and no one knew who we were doing this and then to have success with that um was really fun and awesome and i still take from a lot of that experience um the, the style and things and the electronics and the programming and all of that of course it's applied to all the stuff that we do in julian k um i've actually been a dj on and off since probably i guess the late 80s so that's always something I kind of dabble in here and there. And I guess, you know, it's just all music stuff, you know, anything I can really do and be creative and 
be involved in music and, and make a living is obviously where I want to be. Right, right, right. And your music... Sorry, Dave, what were you going to say? No, I just said yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> okay. Some of your music's also been in, used in like other mediums, right? Like movies and stuff like that? Yep, we've, we've actually scored some indie films. We've had some of our um, Julian K. music placed in some blockbuster films like Transformers and Underworld. Um, TV shows like True Blood, So You Think You Can Dance. Wow. And then we've, so we've done a lot of video game music. We scored the Transformers uh, video game for Activision. Uh, we've done a lot of Sega music, created a lot of the Sonic the Hedgehog themes back in the day, which are still like super popular. It's really funny. That's funny. That's cool. <laughs> So it kind of plays into the, you know, the diversity. Um, you know, we've done a lot of really cool remixes. We've remixed The Cure, um, Avenged Sevenfold, The Dirty Heads, um, Mindless Self-Indulgence. trying to remember all the... Yeah. Wow. That's, pretty that's, cool. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah. You know, thing that we can kind of doesn't mean that it's going to be the main thing but we definitely test the waters and kind of see you know like what works and but any any kind of music stuff anything creative and i mean you know ryan and i own some restaurants too i mean it's kind of funny because all that's kind of creative and risky too <laughs> yeah well that that's that's got to be tough work too running a restaurant is not not easy yeah, well, luckily I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, we've we've had some pretty good luck with some of our places. I've been trying to get Dave to come down to one of them, but you know, I had yeah. the people from one of them. Rob came down to one. Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, it was great. Where's yeah. it located? Um, well, Lola Gaspar is in Santa Ana. Um, I don't remember the exact address, but. Um, that's one of the places. It's kind of a Spanish tapas, American kind of fusion thing. It's been open over 10 years. Food and the drinks there are amazing. It's great. Very proud of it. That's um, and we have a new, a new place called 2145, which is a Japanese-style Napolese pizza, which sounds strange, but trust me, when you taste it, the Japanese make some of the best pizza in the world. Wow, that's and that's it's true. It's a that's, thing. That's shocking. <laughs> it's true. It's a thing. Really, it is. You're talking to yeah. a New York guy, so like when I when I hear that, I'm like, really? That's okay. I know it's it seems crazy, but it's it's <laughs> it's a very it's a really good pizza. That's it's awesome. Not, it's not like other pizzas. I mean, it's you know, it's a good wood fired oven, you know, brick oven kind of thing you know and it, it's cooked 90 seconds but they're so good it's just ridiculous so wow. good love to check it out that's cool so we and have... then oh, some sorry. other thing and ryan also has a couple other restaurants on his own and we we do a lot of co-mingling of our businesses like he's he's actually singing now with edema he's also working with them as the singer 
so I'll be working with them producing their music, but I'm also doing their merch. I've got a, a merch company. Um, so I'm, you know, in the process of doing, um, all of our stuff ourselves, like for Julian K doing the crowdfunding, creating, you know, of course we create the music and all of that, but yeah, you know, there's gotta be a merch element to it all as well as touring element to it all. And, um, luckily my girlfriend, her family used to do import export stuff. And so she kind of helped me learn some of that business to be able to make merch for us. And now I'm, experimenting with doing it for other people as well so i'm doing all the merch for edema for this tour that they're going to be doing next month that's cool mm -hmm. so that's where that's where you you mentioned you were you were heading out on the road yeah so how long are you gonna be gone uh like a month hmm. and then um Julian K already has a tour for next year. I can't announce who it's with yet, but we have a we have a tour starting in March of next year. Excellent. So we're we're kind of pointing all of our guns, getting the record done, and you know, Julian K's record will coincide with with that tour. And then there's other things we're we're working on as well, as far as the the release, because for the most part, it's already you know, kind of done, but we're kind of seeing, we wanted, you know, we wanted some other stuff to happen around it. We didn't want to just put the record out and be like, all right, well, here's the record. So we have, we have a tour now and we're working on some other stuff as well to kind of give it a good, a good shot. Well, that's the smart, that's a smart move. Um, so we have a question from a guy, I think, you know, Keith from the Guitar Guru Network. Oh yeah. Um, he said he'd love to hear more stories about hanging out at the rainbow. Any good stories? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Um, not sure most of those are ready for prime time, but, um, <laughs> oh, uh, honestly, this isn't prime issue. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, honestly, you know, my early days of hanging out in the rainbow, you did watch the Jake show, right? So you know this is <laughs> You know, it's yeah, I mean, crazy. Yeah, it was it was different <laughs> than it is now, you know. I mean it was it was just nonstop. You could, you know, go anywhere, hang out with whoever you wanted and everybody was there. It was very fun. It was just I don't know, I'm trying to think of any any particular stories off the top of my head i can't really i can't think of any at the moment but well lemmy comes to mind anything with lemmy or because he was always there it's it's kind of a big blur that whole era i mean <laughs> you know it's like matt the bass player from rough cut is one of my still one of my best friends um you know we used to go there and the big deal was you know, you could get a Long Island iced tea and, and pretty much be drunk from one because they were so strong, you know, and we, we didn't have money or anything, you know, back then. It was like you kind of, you know, you went there to, to have a good time and, you know, you didn't really need to have a lot of money to to go do things or get a drink or whatever. And, of course, there were lots of girls who would 
facilitate all kinds of things if you wanted it and you know the 80s yeah it was the <laughs> 80s and, and i was 20 years old yeah perfect time <laughs> which i wasn't you know wasn't supposed to be drinking in there when i was 20 but somehow that happened i guess that's not that difficult no everybody, everybody was doing it yeah 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 i mean how many other people were under fucking 21 in there at that time yeah a lot i'm i, I you know, say off the top of my head i really can't think of any crazy i mean there's so many things that went on there too it's like yeah a lot of it i can't really go into can't really talk about we'll get too <laughs> many people in trouble probably <laughs> uh, no worries that's all good um we got a question from Keith Watson. It's actually perfect timing here. Uh, he says, ask Amir what his rig will be when he's touring on the upcoming uh, Julian K album. Well, it's going to be my Friedman BE-50. Um, and I'm actually using, uh, Dave already knows this, I'm using the Line 6, um, how is that thing called? The, the HX. Yeah, HX effects. Uh, no, and this this kind of goes in line with all of my uh, typical contradictions in that yes I'm using a totally rad analog amp and a great guitar and a cable but I'm using fake effects That's okay, but see though. yeah but for me I'm not a purist in that sense you know because actually all the weird a lot of the weird pedals I use and all of that are are modeled very well in that device and it does a lot I mean I can do channel switching I actually had programmed it last year to do um, only two channel switching not realizing that I was going to end up with the with the ability to do three hmm. um, and so I know Dave was helping me figure that shenanigans out but yeah, that's 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 ultra special how they made that for you yeah yeah so, uh, line six thank you yeah so i ended up reprogramming the whole thing so that i can utilize all three channels of my be 50 but it's it's really great because i mean i have all these vintage pedals which you know in the studio i'll use the real pedals but for live you really can't beat it i mean it has everything in it now the, that thing is amazing, and it and they sound really really close. I've always liked the Line Six uh, effect pedal uh, emulations and stuff. I feel like they're the closest mm. in my. Yeah, that's, that's cool. And that's running in yeah. a loop. That's how you have it. Uh, no, actually, and this was another thing that Dave and I talked in about. In front. In front. I'm an in front guy. I've never I liked it. I shudder. <laughs> I, I, I never like. Yeah, I I kind of prefer to sort of slam the front end with a bunch of crazy pedals. Wow. And, yeah, thing is dinging like crazy right now. Um, I I like to um, I like to slam the front end of the amp with all the weird pedals. I don't really like effects loops. It it just sounds too hi-fi to me, which I know again it's a contradiction, but mm. it's kind of my thing. I like to not totally make sense and just use kind of the best of both worlds. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. I don't really go this way or that. It's got to be all analog or it's got to be all this or whatever. I like both. You know, you got to remember that all your favorite guitar players didn't have effects loops. No. (laughs) True. I mean, I think for like reverbs and delays and stuff, it obviously sounds good through an effects loop. There's no denying that. But for me, it's like, I honestly don't want it to sound that good. I kind of want it to be in that little squishy place that happens when you put it in the front. (laughs) That's just me, though. Gotcha. So I'm curious, um, what's some of your favorite gear you've recently got? Or anything new that's, like, exciting you? Um, Well, funny enough that I was quite skeptical about that plasma pedal mm. uh, until until I got it because I tried it on guitar and I'm like, okay, it's cool, it's crackly, it's sputtery, whatever. It's you know, it's got a thing. But I ended up using it on other things, and that's where I really ended up liking it. Mm. Like on bass, it sounds crazy, and on vocals, it sounds amazing. Wow, vocals. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's got some featuring on the new album for sure. I mean, the new single, it's all over that bass and the vocals. Um, obviously I've been using Dave's rig now, which I, that's amazing. It's so nice to have something so good to be able to tour with that is reliable and I can call Dave and something breaks. <laughs> you gonna fly me out? Hey, everyone else. I mean, you're you're amazing with your like customer support. I see you all over the chat rooms and oh, people yeah. always talking you up. Oh, it was so great the service that Dave gave and all that. Like, I I I have no life, <laughs> or that is my life. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You're doing you're doing a good thing, but yeah, that that was something really fun. Um, of course, I got a new keyboard recently that I'm really loving, which is the Electron Digitone keyboard. That thing is just ridiculous. It's an FM synth, you know, that has nothing to do with guitars. But like I said, this is my, I love all of that, you know, synthesizers. And I've got lots of weird vintage stuff, but then I also love a lot of new stuff too. I love to mix and match all of that stuff. Um, most of my pedals, most of them are vintage. I do like the, um, I do like the Death to Analog, uh, not Death to Analog. The, that's our record. Sorry, uh, <laughs> Death by Audio. Yeah, they, they're good uh, stuff. those are the best. They make some weird stuff, and I, I like weird. I love all their stuff. It's amazing. amazing. It's 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 all really kooky. But it sounds good too. Like they just, they make some crushing, you know, fuzz pedals and stuff that are just awesome. <laughs> but I mean, most of the stuff I have is is old. A lot of the stuff that I'm still using, you know, I have a an original super fuzz, which is really the hyper fuzz before, before the hyper. I mean, the hyper fuzz is basically a super fuzz. Mm-hmm. The the uh, I guess it's, is it Univox? I think so. I think the original is a Univox. 
Universe Super Fuzz, yeah. Right? Right, yeah, that's it. It's amazing. Well, the Hyper Fuzz is basically, it's the same thing. In one mode, maybe, yes. Well, they both have the same switchable modes. It, the Hyper Fuzz was basically a clone of the Super Fuzz. Oh. They, they have their own, you know, things, but they're very similar. <clears throat> and then, of course, Behringer came out with one for $20. <laughs> yes, they did. It does sound good, too. <laughs> and, and you know what? It sounds just like it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's probably as far as a pedal clone goes. I think it's probably like, the one I've ever heard. I mean, it's it's the same. You ever see that video by uh, JHS Josh Scott the the Behringer video? Um, I don't think so. It's a couple, maybe a couple months old. He did a video, uh, JHS pedals about Behringer pedals, and about. Which which of their pedals are the clone pedals, um, and and sound great, and they are twenty bucks, <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah it's pretty wild. Um, I do have um, a story, which um, one night when I was there, I'm going to go back to that. Somebody reminded me of a story. My girlfriend ah. reminded me of a story. Um, it was actually how I met the Alice in Chains guys. I came out of the rainbow one night and there was this crazy guy. He was kind of dressed in like a velvet thing with like a top hat or something. Looked like something out of like Alice in Wonderland. And his name was Mike Starr. And he came, <laughs> up, to me and, and he came up to me and just started talking to me randomly. He's like, hey, man, you look really cool. And like, what's your deal? And he just starts talking to me. And... um and, you know, he starts telling me this whole story. Sure. And my band got signed. And, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this one before. I, I didn't. <laughs> and, um, and then he starts telling me this whole story. And, and then he names his A&R guy. And I'm like, wait a minute. I know this guy. And he's not like a big A&R guy. He's just got his job there. And um, he's an old friend from San Diego. And so he's like, yeah, why don't you come back to our Oakwood? We're all hanging out here. And, you know, we just kind of finished our record and all this stuff. So I went back to the Oakwood and it was the whole band was, was there. And that's when I met Jerry and Lane and Sean. And they played me their album, which was on a, a red cassette tape, you know, like those old promo label tapes, you know, and it was they were what Epic or Columbia. So it was red, the whole thing. And. I loved it, and they ended up giving it to me. And then I ended up listening to it for months after that, after meeting them, stayed friends with them. And then the album came out, and I couldn't find it anywhere because I wanted to get the CD to you know, get the, the full fidelity of it. I ended up driving to Moby Disc out in Santa Monica to get, to get that one and only CD that I could find in L.A. when their album came out. <laughs> And um, and then, you know, I don't know, it's like six months or so later, they did something and then they started blowing up. And that's how I met Jerry and all those guys who just did the um, yeah, rock and roll fantasy camp I've done a couple times um, with Alice in Chains and Stone Temple Pilots. 
those guys were the headliners. So it's always. I think I'm going to see those guys tomorrow. Who? STP is on the on the bill. Oh, cool. Oh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go say hi. Yeah, tell tell Robert and Dean I said hi for sure. Yeah. Those guys were awesome. I mean, we we were really fortunate to tour with them last year. We got to tour with the uh, STP, Bush, and the Cult last yeah. year, which was great. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And then. Uh, and then we toured with uh, Jonathan Davis and the Birthday Massacre after that, which was really, really cool. Because we obviously the orgy corn connection. I mean, and Ryan being from Bakersfield, there's a whole there's a whole connection. That's where the edema thing comes in, and you know, we go way back with all of those guys. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. cool. Um, so I think, uh, let me see. Oh, we had a question, super chat question from Modern oh. Vintage. He says, Dave, any plans to update the Dirty Shirley 40 soon or introduce a flagship version like you did with the BE100 Deluxe? What would you change? Any new speakers soon? Uh, Dirty Shirley, hmm, maybe, maybe. Oh, I, I have thoughts about doing that down the road, but we'll see. There's no concrete plans at the moment. Okay. And the speakers, they're still in the works? Speakers, I'm not doing anything with right now. <coughs> they're on hold. We might, re we might revisit that in, in the near future. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I got to the point with the speakers where it was like I got to a point where I liked them, but then were they really better? <laughs> that was the problem I was having. How do you improve upon like a greenback or a vintage thirty or, you know, it's it's so hard. I mean, I think. Um, I, and if if it wasn't going to be totally better, why do it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually had this conversation with Dave because when he was telling me he was going to do some speakers, I I was asking a lot like I want to hear these things, you know, and. Um, when I was doing the reamping for our new album, um, I actually tried. Well, actually, I borrowed one of Dave's cabinets. The the, uh, the cabinet that's on the whole album is Dave's. What well, it has greenbacks and vintage thirties and vintage thirties. That that's what I used for the for the album. Um, and I was just laughing because at the end of the day, I always go back to greenbacks. Yeah, I, I'm like. I've never found a speaker that I've liked, at least for like a, you know, Marshall, Friedman, whatever type of, you know, four by 12 cabinet. I've never found anything that I've ever liked better. There's just from the first time I heard it, first time I ever had a greenback was when I uh, got in rough cut and I re-speakered my Marshall cabinets because I think they probably had whatever stock 65 watt speakers or whatever was in there. And. Yeah. Um, I changed them all out to greenbacks and blackbacks, and I still actually have those cabinets um, as well. But um, I, they're just buried in my locker, and I, I, I have to dig it out. I think, but it has blackbacks and greenbacks in it. And it's like when I went in to do the reamping for the new album, I tried the vintage thirties, and I ended up. When I, as soon as I put it on the greenbacks, I was just like, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. 
it's like I've never been able to escape that, you know, and it, it kind of doesn't even matter what microphone I use or whatever. And I mean, there's, I mean, honestly, for guitar, there's very few microphones to me that make any difference for, for the tone. Right. Or, you know, I mean, you're never going to go wrong with a 57, but usually a 57 is never enough. <laughs> you got to add something to it. And the, back in the day, it was always a 421. Now I think it's the Royer. The 121, I've been leaning more on that um, than the 421. And I also really love uh, Sennheiser 409s, Yeah. Um, which you can't get anymore. So you have to buy a vintage one, and none of the new mics sound anything like the 409. Those, I would say, those three, a 67 and a Bayer M160, those are probably like my like the five most favorite guitar mics. All good choices. And you can use them in any combination or on their own. Um, I have been using. Um, these mics are really fun. Talk about gear stuff. This is studio stuff, but these Placid Audio mics. Wow. I don't know I if you know those. They look cool. They're, they're super cool. This guy Mark makes them. Um, and they're just, they're like lo-fi mics, basically. This one's kind of a brighter, kind of more mid-rangey. Really has almost no low end, not a lot of top end. Um, this is called the copper phone and this is also great on guitar or bass um, You can add this in to any combination and it Sounds amazing. This one is, is a Russian Military uh, the element the carbon el element that's in here um, is a Russian military piece that he makes it actually it requires phantom power if you shake it, it's like a salt shaker. You can hear the, <laughs> you can hear the, the carbon in there like rolling around. <laughs> but this one is like super distorted and very thick sounding. Um, I've used this on a lot of different things: drums, percussion, vocal, all these on vocals. Um, but this one actually is really cool on bass. Do you? Do you um, um... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you, like you take an RE twenty or something, and you and you just put this with it. It's awesome. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Yeah. Where'd you get those? Um, I I don't remember where I found out about them originally, but you can just buy them directly from from Placid Audio. Oh wow. Yeah. They're they're really fun. They're like my two like go to fun mics. Have you um, have you messed with IRs? Not not too much. Um, again, I think when it comes to some of that stuff, like especially some of those modeling mics and all that, it's like they sound good on their own, but I'm afraid to risk what happens later on. So I just have like a, you know, like a U47 kind of knockoff mic. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, 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 use the wheel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, if you can, I guess it's better than, yeah, you might as well. Yeah. I mean, for me, like I said, it's, it's really 
I guess because I've had the experience, you know, being a mixer or whatever. And it's like, I get a lot of stuff from people that, you know, they use plugins and I end up having to do a lot to them to make them. Sometimes I have to just totally reamp it, you know, and just redo the sound altogether, whether it's bass or guitar. Um, sometimes it doesn't matter if it's a more electronic band. A lot of times it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, it's fine. Again, it's, kind of sitting in the background it's not a featured instrument per se so i guess it makes me a little skittish when it comes to anything that involves you know microphones or like you know recording re recording a singer because you know that's really you know probably the most important thing you're going to do on a record is you've got to capture that vocal performance you know and the last thing i want is to be fighting with that later on if if the if it's not cutting, you know, yeah, that's not going to be fun. <laughs> so in that case, and the other thing too for me is just um, being able to just have a piece of hardware that I can pick up and take. I don't have to have software installed, or I don't have to, you know, in order to for something to work. I don't really want that. I'd rather just be able to pick up the microphone and take it with me, and and it works, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I guess with some of those amp modelers and stuff, I mean, they you know they all sound decent, but I don't know. I think it kind of depends on the tone too, because all the tones that I typically like to go for are kind of weird. They're not they're not your standard sound, so most of those boxes don't really have that kind of stuff. And I I use a lot of just funky amps and. Some not so funky, obviously, just good hard rock amps like Dave's. Um, but then, you know, I kind of mix it with other things. So it's kind of just that stuff just doesn't really work for me personally. Cool. No, that's awesome. He likes the real stuff. He likes the real stuff. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Like, like I always, people ask, well, what mic pre should I buy? Well, there's only two. Yeah. <laughs> There's a Neve or an API. Well, I actually think well, maybe there's another one, but you know, there's three. I, and the, there are the three that I have, which is a Neve type API, and then the Universal Audio 610. I oh, yeah. have that. I've been using that since it came out, like you know, the reissue of it, you know, like I don't know, 20 years ago. To me, that for like vocals, it just I think it's that's what I've been using on everything since that came out basically yeah, yeah those, are, those are my three those are my three voices for you know going it in, going into the box and that's all you need yeah i mean you got to create the character you know because that's the whole thing with the digital realm i've kind of had to relearn working you know mixing especially in the digital realm because back in the day when we would record on tape and have all this gear and the boards and microphones and all this stuff you know there's just character all along the way everything is adding you know harmonic content and character and eq and phase stuff and you know you end up with something that already kind of has a sound where now it's you know i try to do that going in having good mic pre's and whether it be pedals or whatever it is you know going in but once it's in there, it's still relatively sterile. <laughs> yeah. And you have to really 
you have to go a bit crazy with the plugins and stuff because even the plugins, you kind of have to pile them on. You know, you, typically one compressor isn't, you know, it just doesn't do what that original compressor did as a piece of hardware. You might be able to, you know, back in the day, you'd put one, one good high-end compressor on, on a vocal and it's probably done, <laughs> you know? Now it's like you've got to combine like multiple things and yeah. same ring, same rings true with live. Um, the Tom Abraham, who we had on our show, said the exact same thing. It's like, yeah, in the old days of the box PAs and analog consoles and analog gear, you just pretty much put the faders up and wow, there you go. It sounds good. He goes, now I have to pile on plugins in order to even remotely approach how good it used to sound yeah and, and it's not quite right still well and that's what i was saying is you kind of i kind of had to relearn everything you know because i've been working in the box now back in the you know 90s when i was mixing producing and engineering records it mostly was on tape and then it, you know, started to go digital when I was in Orgy. We started, it was kind of a hybrid thing where we were mixing, you know, some stuff was tape, some was digital tape even, you know, like there was, plus, but, you know, you were still mixing it in like a real studio with real outboard gear. So, you know, over the years as I've gotten back into it now, I feel like the, the software has really gone to another level though. A lot, especially like the universal audio stuff is really good. Um, so, but, you know, I mean, a lot of it, it's just, you, you do kind of have to pile it on a little bit more to kind of get it to go somewhere. So you have to have a relatively powerful system, but it, it was, it's definitely been a learning curve. I'm still learning every day how to, how to do the, do it better, you know, but it, it took me a little while, it took me a few years to kind of get back to a place where I felt like I was, you know, back in the nineties with yeah. a year, you know? And I think that kind of, it, it kind of goes across the board with all the emulating stuff to me. You know, I think it's, it's gotten really good. Some of it's actually really good, but I don't know if it's enough yet. If it's all the way, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's not all the way yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Mo Modern Vintage has another question for you, Dave, with the super chat. Thank you, Modern Vintage, for the super chat. Uh, Dave, related, do you hear the same artificial, harsh, grainy top end and mids with a Boss, Wazo, or IRs in the same way you do modelers? How is feel? Um, no, not necessarily. Um it's different um hmm, how do i answer that i no irs in general irs uh can be pretty much uh nulled and sound pretty much like the cabinet with the proper load um the only thing that happens with an ir is an ir is a static sort of a static picture of the uh of the the cabinet at a certain how do I want to say it? Uh, it doesn't take into account how you're driving the cabinet. 
So the speaker changes how it, the character of it sell. The speaker changes as the volume goes up or down. Um, so how the greenback sounds with a 100-watt Marshall blazing through it versus a 10-watt amp going through it is very different. Yeah. Um, so uh, the one thing the IR doesn't quite capture is that element. Um, although, realistically, I mean... It, you know, it's good. But you know what? If you've got the real cabinet and some mics and some mic preamps, just use the real cabinets. <laughs> if you can't, then use the IR. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're not capable or not able to do that, you know, use that. Um, and, you know, not all IRs are created equal either. So there's a lot of really good ones out there. Most of the stuff by own hammer is really good. Um, they're the ones I like the most. Um, he does a really good job, and he, I know the guy, and he's extremely uh, crazy about it. <laughs> I feel he's like really some, into it. I feel like some of the guys that do like you know more of the metal stuff can get some really amazing tones out of some of that stuff. Yeah, they're really you know you know what I'm saying like the really you know crazy metal kind mm -hmm. of. Stuff. I've heard some stuff, and like wow, that's yeah, it's just I guess for me it's just like I wouldn't I, I wouldn't know what to do with that. <laughs> that's, that's just me though, because I I like weird stuff. You know, our music, all the music, all the bands I've ever been in is it's always been kind of weird. But that's that's just how I am. That's I like that's I like kind of being this way a little bit. You know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So Joe, Joe Hervey 84 said, I thought a rectifier was used for orgy. I could be wrong. No. Okay. No, I, I, I will actually divulge to you <laughs> the supposed secret tone. I think Dave knows already. I think I told you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the funny thing is, aside from the pedal and all that, um, the amp that was used a lot on the first album was my Roland JC 120. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that was run into a Marshall cabinet and I think it was literally just mic'd with the 57. So between the DI and the sound, well, the JC 120 speakers were disconnected. So basically I was using it as a solid state amp running that into the cabinet with all those effects and the guitar synthesizer and all that that stuff wow. that kind of was the initial that's what gave it it's sort of really crazy crackly kind of fucked up tone it's actually a, a really kind of a funny story of guitar stuff uh, guitar tones um on the first album we were we had a friend named Josh Abraham who's since gone on to be a, a pretty famous producer, but we, he was kind of in his beginnings there with us um, in Orgy. We had done all the demos. We had started all the demos in his garage and at Energy Studios. And when we finished the first album, I'm never going to let Gina, his wife, live this one down. Um, when we finished the, the first album, she literally came over to me while I was at the studio 
and started yelling at me and was saying like, what, like, what the fuck are you thinking? Like those guitar sounds are the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and she was angry. She was actually really angry about it. And Josh was like over in the corner and he was like laughing. He thought it was hilarious, but she was literally ripping my head off about my de decision basically of what the sound was that we were going for. And, and I was just like, that's it. You've just validated what I've done. I've polarized you to a point <laughs> where you've, you think it's the worst thing you've ever heard. And I'm like, I, love I it. think I, I think I've done it. <laughs> Perfect. You know, just I mean? what I wanted. Yeah, I told her that. I was just like, that's exactly what I want it to sound like. I want it to sound broken. I want it to sound fucked up. I don't want it to sound like anything that anybody's ever really done before. So, cool. And then she didn't talk to me for like two months after that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so well that actually worked out yeah. yes exactly exactly, exactly. Uh, so how are you doing on time amir you all right uh, yeah i'm good we can can do i don't know how long we've been talking so i think we're going about two hours now oh uh, all right that's cool well uh, if anybody has any last questions maybe we should knock those out i don't know um i'm looking to see if we have any other questions that i've missed um dave do you see any i you know what i've already lost <laughs> no, what i've learned is when i do it on the computer screen no problem i can keep track of what's going on but on my phone it's just like i after a while i put it down and i'm like yeah okay <laughs> yeah it gets hard um it's too bad pass me one of those yinglings dave i know pass right? it through the screen there you go <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Wait, there we go. I wish it worked that way. I wish it worked so, that way. Yeah, someone actually asked that question. What is Dave drinking tonight? I'm drinking Yingling. Yeah. Only only available in, I don't know what states, but. Well, actually more states, more states than it used to be. It used to only be Pennsylvania. That's where it comes from. Hmm. But now you can actually get it in a lot of places. I can get it in Florida. I know we can, I can get them. It's not West Coast at all. Oh, wow. Yeah, Ying's good beer. Um, here's a good question for you, Amir. Um, what's your memories of being involved in the Here and Aid project? Oh, that was, that was a really fun night. Again, of course, the Dio's having us be a part of that was, was amazing. And Paul got to sing some first lines. Um, I had actually went there with pretty good friends at the time with Carlos Cavazzo from Quiet Riot. And we, we went there together. And, of course, it was a pretty big party. Um, the, the one thing that really stood out to me about that whole session was just how amazing Rob Halford was. <laughs> we, were all, we were all in the room. And, of course, all of us were singing this chorus, right? And feeling kind of silly because the chorus is we're stars, you know, and it's kind of like it's not what Ronnie meant, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it felt kind of silly to some of us. But Rob Halford was, a, you know, a few feet in front of me. So, you know, 
the back of his head was facing me. But when we were singing all that, all you could hear was Rob. He was hitting this note that was like so high, and you can hear it in the recording, but he dominated that whole choir. I mean, he was, it's, I was, I had no idea how amazing, you know, I mean, I knew he was an amazing singer, but I didn't know how much power he had behind it, too. And it's one thing to hit the notes, but to hit the notes with that kind of volume, I mean, it's like kind of unheard of. And of course, Ronnie was like that, too. Ronnie, he would walk out on stage because a lot of times we would play together at things or whatever, and he'd come out. As soon as he got on the mic, he could be on the same mic as any other singer. And the other singers are all struggling, blah, 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 can't hear themselves. Ronnie would come out, and you would just hear his voice from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like, Amazing. Yeah. Craziest thing, how, how that is. But, yeah, that night it turned into a big party and I remember Carlos ended up getting so drunk that he gave me the keys to his car, which was at the time was a Ferrari. <laughs> that was kind of fun. So then I drove us to the rainbow. <laughs> there we go. Common theme. There's a story. Now here we go. <laughs> it was kind of cool pulling up to the rainbow in a Ferrari. Yeah. How you doing? Here's my keys. <laughs> <laughs> that's always nice that's cool um here's a cool question from eric johnson uh how much of an influence was marilyn manson um i would say i'm sure he's referring to orgy um funny enough i i i'd say more like Musically, I don't think he was that much of an influence on what we were doing. I would say vocally, I'm sure it was somewhat of an influence for Jay. Um, I think musically, though, we were kind of really listening to a lot of 80s and 90s industrial. Um, I mean, we used to call it death pop because we got, we got coined that at some point. But I, I always thought that was a great juxtaposition you know the the yin and the yang the black and the white i always like those types of things where it's just so contradictory you know mm -hmm. that like, that sort of defined what we were what we were you know we were taking all these sort of 80s you know duran duran type things and then mixing that with what was more industrial like nine inch nails and ministry and of course what Manson was doing and but I don't really think we sounded like that I, I feel like we fit in that genre but I think we were a little more like science fiction or something yeah absolutely. <laughs> you know definitely more more of the the new wave stuff stuck through and and especially in our image whereas he was more grotesque which worked well for him, um, we we went more, you know, it was like what we always used to jokingly say, Duran Duran on crack. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's a good question from Tom Digital. Thanks for your question. Are you going to continue infusing those synth guitar sounds into Julian K stuff? I've learned so much cool stuff tonight. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I do actually use some of that stuff, but I think since I've become more proficient on actually keyboards that for the most part, I, I kind of do that now. 
more than trying to do. I, I, I kind of like to, with every project that I've, you know, really been a founder of or whatever, I like to create a sound for those bands. Um, you know, whether it be Dead by Sunrise, which was a more raw kind of rock and roll kind of vibe, because that's kind of really where Chester, where his roots were. Um, Orgy, of course, was is its own thing. And then Julian Cave, we really wanted that to kind of be its own thing, which has a little of all of that in it, but it's also its own kind of beast. And of course, all the bands that I work with, I always try to infuse a sound that becomes their own as well. Um, so probably not so much. I mean, I do you, I do it once in a while. I will do some lines or things um, with with some of the old gear. And I mean, Ryan, especially on the new album, we're doing a lot of this stuff from more from that era. It's kind of taking that whole thing and moving it a little bit forward. I think he'll probably like that, like our new record. Cool. Judging. Yeah. Cool. L. L Scott Music. Amir, if you like Weird, were you a fan of Devo? Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, honestly, it's probably where I stole a lot of my robot moves when I was in because it a lot of, you know, a lot of that <laughs> stuff. I think I got, probably got a lot of it from Devo unconsciously. But again, it was one of those things where, you know, everybody, especially in different eras, they all they always kind of have all these kind of moves that like rock bands do or whatever. And there's always kind of like over the, over the years, there's all these different, things that sort of catch on and then a lot of the bands they kind of all have the same moves you know what i mean and i think in that band and because of the music we were creating was so cold and futuristic and kind of robotic in a lot of ways i just started moving that way <laughs> and but i think i think i got a lot of that probably from like bands like devo you know because they were probably the first band that ever kind of did that kind of stuff, I think. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they were so unique and original. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. I mean, I have obviously tons of in, uh, influences outside of obviously the metal stuff, all the new wave and goth and industrial stuff, Depeche Mode, of course. Um, Devo, Killing Joke, Knights are Ab. Um, Killing Joke is cool too. I've listened to that stuff. That stuff, a lot of that stuff, it just holds up, you know. Still, you listen to it, and it's just like, man, so good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The Cure, of course. The Cure was actually a big influence on Orgy as well. Yeah. I, I always, we loved the layering. Cure always had, you know, obviously great bass lines, um, besides the amazing songwriting of Robert Smith, but they, they did always did such a great job of layering so many different parts, but yet it all sounded like this big wall of sound, right? That was, that's still to this day is a big, big influence. Guitar, you know, guitar and I guess keyboard, but... A lot of it was guitar layerings that they did. I've never seen The Cure. I always wanted to. 
Yeah. I saw him a couple, probably a few times. I saw him at Dodger Stadium. I saw him at a private show. I actually got to meet Robert Smith. That was amazing. Cool. That's cool. He, he had our album. He had been listening to it and then asked us to tour with him. I met him. He's like, I've got, I've got your uh, CD on my bus right now. I really like it. I'm like, uh, uh, wow. <laughs> You're like, uh, 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 what do I say? <laughs> I don't to say to that. Holy shit. That's awesome. Robert, it's my album. Yeah. I love seeing him at uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was, uh, you see his interview? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Oh, man, I felt bad for that girl. <laughs> I, I have a funny, another funny story with Rob Halford that just made me think of that because one time I was flying, actually, I was flying to Arizona to see my friends in Cold Chamber who I had either just finished the record or whatever they were playing. And I was sitting there. This was mid-90s. I was sitting at the airport, and Rob Halford sits down across the way from me. And so I'm like, ah, oh, this is weird. So I went over to him, and I just said, hey, Rob, I don't know if you remember me, but I was in Rough Cut, and we had known each other back then, but I hadn't seen him in years. Totally remembered and was super stoked to see me, and we started talking, and He's like, why don't you sit with me on the plane? Let's, you know, hang out, talk, and whatever. And I said, okay. So I get on the plane, and we're sitting there, and, and I had just finished the, the orgy record. And we were talking about stuff, and I told him, I said, you know, I have this new band and doing all this stuff with guitar synthesizers. And he got this look on his face, and he's like, oh. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, they got a lot of shit for that. And I said, you know, I know you guys got a lot of shit for doing that turbo record, but I have to tell you that it was a huge inspiration for me. And I, you know, I love that record. I, I know I'm probably, he's like, yeah, well, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're one of very few. Um, although the record was successful, but I know they got a lot of shit for it. So I said, you know, I just finished the record and you wanted to hear it. He's like, oh, I'd love to hear it. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I, I would love to hear it. So I, I gave him the thing, he put the headphones on, and he literally listened to the entire record. He didn't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> the entire flight and listened to the whole record from top to bottom. And I was just like, I guess he likes it. <laughs> like, I couldn't believe it. He was like, you know, he was like rocking out and he was like listening to the whole thing. And, I think at the time he had done that, what was that album? I think it was called like Two or something. Yeah, with John. It was around that time with John Five, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was John Five and Two? I'm pretty sure. I, I think so. Which it was kind of like industrial rock kind of thing, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, he listened to the whole record and he had nothing but great things to say. He was so nice. He was, he was so flattering. You know, I mean, this was like a guy, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, I, you know, like when I was talking about my guitar influences, like as far as like, um, you know, single guitar players, Jeff Beck, Holdsworth, Schenker, um, Yuli Roth. But when it came to like the dual harmony guitar players, it was definitely K.K. Downing and and uh, Glenn Tipton and then 
uh, what's his name, Scott Gorham and Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy. Mm, yep. I loved all of that. So, you know, growing up being a huge Judas Priest fan, of course, for him then to tell me all this stuff, just like Robert Smith. I mean, I had like both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that's like, awesome. Great. Like, you know, it was so cool. It was so flattering. He was so nice. It was really awesome. Yeah, he's he's still got an amazing voice. Yeah. I mean, he's still going. I mean, I just saw them on tour. Oh, he's still great. Yeah. Yeah. Just blowing, blowing. I mean, I almost felt like you could hear him over the band, even if he didn't have that mic. No, but that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like when we did the hearing aid thing, I was just like, I was flabbergasted. I'd never never seen anything like that in my life yeah he's or her yeah he's amazing yeah um eric johnson says is john five the greatest industrial guitar player of all time what i don't yeah i don't think so (laughs) i don't know yeah i think john five plays a lot of styles man he's he's played with zombie i think and um he played with Manson, right? So he played with Manson, Zombie. David Lee Roth. Oh, okay, yeah. Wait, wait. Katie Lang. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. So he's just a good guitar player. Yeah, all he's, around. He's just, yeah, I mean, the guy can chicken pick to playing crazy shit. So, um, Tom Digital, when you guys first started playing Orgy Live, most of that stuff was played raw, right? Much sure yes. more Okay. It was a, it was a disaster. Yes. <laughs> we had we had P drums mistriggering and when we went out on that tour with Corn, we basically got our asses handed to us. Mm. Nothing nothing working how it was supposed to. Well, not how it was, but we had been used to rehearsing in controlled environments. So when we got out and basically were thrown on stage with no sound check or anything it was a fucking disaster every night for the first probably for the first couple of weeks of that tour we we literally thought we might be going home like it was i mean for us it was that bad i don't know how bad it was <laughs> especially with the drums and stuff everything was like mistriggering and it was it, it was really difficult to make it work consistently because that stuff wasn't really made to be put on tour and on the road. It was like for people to play in their bedrooms, you know. And and our rigs, although my rig was completely solid, the other guys had problems with their rigs, even though they were way less complex. And I, I don't, I never know why. Never knew why that was. Our bass player had the most problems, and he had like three pedals. <laughs> three pedals. And it was like is something going wrong. Ryan had mostly was good. There were a couple of bad nights where we it was tricky. We had to figure it out. But um, yeah, it was bad until basically what happened. We went to we were in New York and we we basically kind of had a showcase show for Orgy because um, I don't know maybe the label put it together or something. But we had like a showcase show. And 
it was the first time we were able to have our own sound man. We had a sound check and we were able to do everything sort of in, in our control. And we pretty much decimated that place. And after that show, the guys in Corn went to the production and the tour because we were on the Family Values tour. That's where we basically started on this huge tour. And they just told everybody, like, you've got to give these guys a sound check. You've got to start helping them. They're not a three-piece rock band. They're doing something different. And you need to listen to what they're saying and help them. And then everything started going good after that. But in the first couple of weeks, we literally were starting to think, like, maybe we should just go home. It was that bad. <laughs> like, we were like, maybe we're really really crazy and this is this was a really bad idea and maybe we really suck <laughs> it was that bad well i'm not sure when tom digital saw you guys but he said it sounded great to me good so. well maybe that was after we had it together and as as we progressed and especially by the the later tours that we did we really had it together and it was really sounding like like the studio, but live, you know, like it was powerful and articulate. You could hear everything and there was no mistriggering of the drums. And you know, we, it was, it was rough. It was good. I bet. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so I think we've covered all the questions and, um, okay. so what are, what are some of the th things that are coming up for you, Amir? Um, well, well, I think we we kind of touched on it, but I can recap. Um, the new Julian K record is is basically done. Uh, Harmonic disruptor and the title kind of says it all. It's meant to be a bit of a punch in the face. It's going to be probably the most aggressive record we've done. Um, it is a it it is a bit of a throwback to some of our history, but it's also pushing forward new all at the same time um we've got a tour coming up in march of next year so pretty much all of this stuff is going to line up with that when we go out and do that um in the meantime right now i've been um like i said i'm producing this band with ryan called uh, slaves to humanity uh, great rock and roll band from the oc and they're all like 15 years old it's really oh, wow. really Babies. Yeah. Cool. That's what you like to see. Yeah, I'm also working and mixing a lot of other projects for a lot of other people. Um, and then we're also doing this edema run starting in like two weeks. And Ryan is singing with them. So we've got our hands in a lot of stuff. Like I said, we're always commingling all of our business, whether it's the, the restaurants or music or whatever. But we have, we kind of just always help each other. I mean, that's what friends do. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Amir, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, everybody check out Amir Durak. Check him out um, online and his social media stuff. Uh, do you want to give your address for your social media? Um, I, I mean, basically, you can just type my name in and you'll find all kinds of stuff, I'm sure. A-M-I-R-T-E-R-A-K-H. Perfect. 
Um, and for folks who are interested in what's coming up on the show, we have Rick Beato on October 11th, which will be a cool show. Then uh, October 25th, we've got Santiago Alvarez. And Santiago worked for uh, Marshall mm-hmm. for a really long time. Um, he actually lives in China, Dave. So we're going to oh, do it. All- what, what time are we going to be doing this? <laughs> we're at, no, we're actually we're actually doing it a regular time, but it'll be Saturday morning for him. Uh, okay. So, um, and then Mike Seldon. That's uh, October twenty fifth. Okay. And then we've got November 8th, if that works for you, Dave, for Mike Soldano, part two. That's cool. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that'll be awesome. So, um, so yeah, and also, everybody, check out Sweetwater. They still have some sales going on. Um, so, got to give the Sweetwater plug. This is, this is our plug. This is our plug. There you go. Nice. Check out Sweetwater, 48-month interest-free financing um go I think buy some my amps there you go <laughs> go buy some friedman amps yeah. friedman guitars friedman pedals yeah so um yeah you guys have a great weekend amir hang on uh while we hang up and um uh, let me just say thanks to not only both of you guys but for everybody tuning in and thank you so much thanks dave always uh, always fun of course to geek out together and really nice to meet you mark same here amir thank you thank but, you yeah thank you thank you everyone yeah thanks guys you have a great weekend and we will talk to you on the next show cool